Across the globe, 2,800 dedicated soldiers and civilians at 23 locations in 11 time zones stand ready. This is SMDC. Welcome back to the High Ground, home of U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command. I'm Ronald Bailey. And I'm Sergeant First Class Trenton Hunsinger. We're glad you could join us. Sergeant Hunsinger is joining us this month because I thought it was high time after 10 months we bring on a non-PAO person to co-host. You know, to add an air of legitimacy to the podcast. 10 episodes, that's all I have to say. It has taken 10 iterations for you to find the best co-host for SMDC. Just kidding. I had the chance to listen to the original test podcast with yourself and Michaela almost a year ago. And it has been great to see the growth of this project. I enjoy listening each month, and I'm a loyal subscriber as well. Glad to have you here. And yeah, I remember you were one of our original beta testers for the podcast. So much thanks to you and all the others, both then and now. Anyway, let's give folks a quick heads up as to what's coming. So this episode seems a bit lighter than usual. I know temporarily losing Sergeant First Class Ronstead put a dent in the show, but there's still plenty to cover. We'll start out talking about a new training system the Space and Missile Defense School received, which is vital to training missile defense warfighters. We'll also delve into how a group of U.S. Marine Corps space professionals are embedding with 1st Space Brigade to learn how the brigade's Army space support teams work. First Sergeant Sagan brings us another great history moment, and we'll talk with the highly animated Master Sergeant Jose Cruz, SMDC's career counselor in the Cool Job segment. All this and more, so stick around. Ask not. What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. It's August 2021, and this is Episode 10 of The High Ground, U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command's monthly signature podcast. We made it to double digits, Hunsinger, anymore, and I'll have to take my boots off to count. I know, math is so hard. As I mentioned earlier, it has been great to listen to the episodes and learn about the different segments of the command. I really have enjoyed listening over the past year. Now, if we could only figure out this host assignment process. Okay, for everyone listening, I honestly thought about featuring Hunsinger for the Cool Job segment on one of our monthly episodes on account of his interesting background, personality, past and current assignments. But since he's always chiding us here in PA, I thought, hey, I'll fix that. I'll shove a microphone in his face and make him do the whole show with me. Kidding aside, we've always connected, being fellow air defenders and all. So can you give the folks a little background on how you got to where you are today, standing in front of this microphone here at the SMDC High Ground Podcast? Thanks, Beetle. As you well know, and of course I'm ashamed to admit, I've always thought very highly of you. I was fortunate to have a lot of educational and professional opportunities before joining the military. I'm an air defense artillery branch soldier. Upon joining the military in 2011, my first assignment was to JTAGS, or Missile Warning, at Osan Air Base, South Korea, within 1st Space Brigade. I was then stationed at Peterson Air Force Base, which is our other headquarter element for the command, within the G-33 Division, which is current operations. From Colorado, I PCS to Camp Osalea, Qatar, with JTAG CENTCOM for a year. After that tour, I was lucky enough to be selected to become the G3 Operations Non-Commissioned Officer in Charge here at a Redstone Arsenal headquarters. Well, I'm glad you're here, not just today, but every day. It's nice having someone you can call in the three shop to bounce things off or just ask, what's the reality on this for, you know, whatever. Uh, Hunsinger helps us out here in the PAO shop immensely, and we appreciate that. Anyway, 
This is the part of the show where we normally say we're taking you to Colorado Springs and Sergeant First Class Ronstadt. But today it's you and me calling the plays, and we'll start out with an article Dottie White, our PAO at our other headquarters there at Peterson Air Force Base, put together about a new training system at our Space and Missile Defense School there in the Springs. It's a training version of a system I've used in the past, but not sure that's something you may have worked on during your JTAG years. What Dottie's article highlights is a school receiving a new training device from the Missile Defense Agency for the Command and Control Battle Management and Communications Training System, or simply C2BMC. Me personally, I've had experience with the C2BMC system from my time with the G33 and going through some industry and military training. However, most JTAG soldiers do not get a chance to work with the MDA system. Beetle, how did you use the C2BMC system and what did it do for you? Well, I'm not sure on the doctrinal answer on that as far as what it does. I'll defer to the Missile Defense Agency for that. But in the most simplistic terms as a user, when I was a GMD missile crew soldier, it's kind of in the name itself. I think of it as a network that synchronizes command, control, and communication, battle management, and situational awareness tool that connects sensors, shooters, and command and control nodes. To maybe put that into context, again, couched against my limited and now dated experience with it, it has the ability to take shooters, sensors, and command node information, some of it never really designed to work together, and do just that, kind of an integrator system, if you will. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So the new C2BMC trainer, itself known as Mission Specific Vendor Plugin, or MSVP, will integrate the new next generation of C2BMC capabilities and will support training for the next generation of C2BMC software planned for deployment later this year. The MSVP will be utilized to train sensor managers, long-range discrimination radar, GMD fire control, missile defense crews, that's what Beetle did before, and operators from the Joint Functional Component Command for Integrated Missile Defense. Right. I actually called one of my old GMD buddies, a retired warrant officer, who is now the C2BMC course manager at the schoolhouse, and asked what the biggest takeaway from this was. His response was that the most unique part of the trainer is that you can make changes to the training scenarios on the fly. So instead of programming in a scenario with its events and faults in advance and letting it play sort of like a tape recorder, then judging the operators on their responses, they can now alter the parameters of the simulation live based on their assessment of how the crew is doing in real time, a much more dynamic capability to improve operator proficiency. Our next story involves soldiers from the 1st Space Brigade who are working with a small group of U.S. Marine Corps space professionals to learn how the Army does business and potentially modeling some of the structure and mission of Army space support teams. That's right. And before he went off orders, Sergeant First Class Ronstad wrote an article about this, and I'd highly encourage folks to head over to our DIVIDS page to check that out. As a bonus, I was able to talk with Major Stephen Richards, an Army Space Support Team officer in charge with Second Space Company, 1st Space Battalion, 1st Space Brigade, to explain a little further what this collaborative effort is all about. So the Marine Space Support Teams are becoming part of the brigade, initially just with uh, four Marine personnel who are going to specialize in, in uh, space support. So myself, my background is uh, an Army Space Support Team OIC, and what we do is we uh, travel out to, to operational level staffs, typically division and higher, but um, not just you know Army Corps, we do Marine Expeditionary Forces, where obviously the Marines will be focused, 
Uh, we do a bunch of joint task force uh, staff level support um, for various different war fighting uh, exercises and, uh, and uh, combatant command level exercises. So what the Army space support teams primarily do and what the Marine space support team is going to be modeling itself after is uh, we like to say that we provide base to the warfighter. And so what we do is through various systems, um, we leverage national level assets. We bring to bear space-based effects and space-based collection down into the operational level staff where there is not otherwise space expertise and these staffs would not otherwise be able to leverage all the kinds of different intelligence products um, and deliverables that, that we can provide. What's exciting about the Marines coming on board is that, you know, while the, the Air Force has been, you know, extremely heavy in space and that's kind of spawned the Space Force, uh, the Army has had um, the FA-40 Space Operations Officer for a couple of decades now. The Marines and the Navy have not had as robust of a space professional career path um, as, as the Army has had. And this is kind of an indicator that maybe that is starting to change. The space-based environment, the space operational domain is going to be part of any future full-scale conflict. Um, and the Marines and Navy are really starting to embrace that. So initially the, the Marine space support team, you know, they're coming on board, they're gonna be part of or operating out of the, uh, the Army's first space brigade out of our building. And they're gonna fall in on kind of our educational and training architecture that we've had uh, in place for many years uh, for Army space support teams. They'll be able to take advantage of the uh, Space Missile Defense Command uh, schoolhouse and the pipeline and all the training and, and opportunities that, that we have here um, in Colorado Springs to train them up so that they can go out to these Marine Expeditionary Force level staff and just multiply the um, the force and the, uh, it, it's, it can be hard to talk at the unclass level because we operate at the secret and above level. But suffice it to say, they're gonna be able to, with just you know a four person team, just open the door wide open to all these, uh, these force multiplier effects based on orbit or, or on the ground that are space-based or affect the space domain. So that's really exciting. As an Army Space Support Team OIC, I've had a lot of great opportunities to travel uh, and be part of division and core level staffs and exercises. And when they are operating, you know, at their at their greatest capacity during during warfighter uh, exercises, and it's it's really rewarding for us. It's a very exciting and uh, and ever changing domain, and and I think these Marines are going to. Uh, really find themselves being highly valued in the Marine Force. And, um, and I think they're going to find this, uh, this job very rewarding as well. All right. Thanks to Major Richards for taking the time out of his day to talk with us about the cross-training and their program. We appreciate his perspective. The ability for sister services to communicate and share lessons learned is invaluable. It is not common that junior soldiers get a chance to work in joint environments. So this is a great relationship that the Marines and the Army have formed. It will ensure both services have the best space awareness for fighting in the joint multi-domain battlefield of the future.
Next up, it's First Sergeant Steve Sagan out in Colorado Springs, who brings us part three of his series on the history of rockets and missiles, this time covering a real turning point in the history of rocket and missile development technology during World War II in the SMDC History Minute. This is an SMDC History Moment. I'm First Sergeant Steve Sagan. In this episode, we will talk World War II, vengeance weapons, and the dreaded V-2. Rockets continued to be used by both the Axis and Allies during the Second World War. Most of these, like the Soviet Katusha or American T-40 Whizbang, were unguided, mass-firing barrage weapons. Mounted on everything from planes to ships, tanks to trailers, these rockets were very effective, but they lacked the ability to find their own way to the target. But all that changed with the efforts of the Wehrmacht and Luftwaffe. In the 1930s, the German military started to consider the potential usefulness of rockets in warfare. The Treaty of Versailles had imposed stringent restrictions on Germany's artillery force, which prompted the Germans to consider rockets as a possible alternative to, or improvement on, long-range artillery. Throughout the war, German scientists were hard at work trying to create the perfect weapon. Their efforts paid off, and the first cruise missile the V-1 buzz bomb, the so-called vengeance weapon, was born. Using a gyro-compass-based autopilot, the first V-1 was launched at London on June 13, 1944. Why was it called a buzz bomb? It got its name from the distinctive roar of its engine. The danger came when it became silent. That meant the V-1 ran out of fuel and the 1,600-pound warhead fell on its target. Although they were plentiful, they were not very accurate, at least not by today's standards. At least 1,000 of the bombs were shot down or nudged off course in flight. Of the approximately 10,000 V-1s fired at the city of London, 7,000 missed their targets. 1,000 were shot down, and only about 2,000 actually hit the city or other targets. But Werner von Braun, a German rocket scientist, was about to change warfare forever. In 1943, the V-2 rocket was produced. This is considered to be the world's first ballistic missile. The V-2 was 47 feet long, weighed 29,000 pounds, and could carry a 1,600-pound warhead. With a range of about 200 miles, it was a very effective weapon. It had an internal gyroscope, which guided it to its target. The V-2 was launched vertically, and it rose to an altitude of about 50 miles as it headed to its target. However, on June 20th, 1944, a V-2 reached an altitude of 109 miles, making it the first rocket to reach space. Although it was less accurate than the V-1, it was silent, and it struck without warning. Over 1,400 V-1s were launched in England, and approximately 6,500 people were injured and around 2,700 killed by this vengeance weapon. After the war, the U.S. and Soviets captured hundreds of V-2s, and many of the scientists who developed them to create the next generation of warfare and fuel the space race. But that's another episode. This has been an SMDC History Moment. I'm First Sergeant Steve Sagan. Thanks for listening. I am so jealous he gets to do those. You know, I'm actually a pretty big student and enthusiast of military history, especially the technology side, and again, especially the rocket and missile technology. Me too. 
I've actually always thought of those pieces as First Sergeant Sagan segments. I hope that tagline sticks anyways. Rarely do you get to hear from soldiers with the background and knowledge that First Sergeant Sagan has. Plus, I believe First Sergeant Sagan was actually part of the group that worked with Werner von Braun when he was helping set up NASA. I'm not telling him that. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, it's time for the highlight of our show, the cool job segment. Earlier this week, Ron and I caught up with a very busy soldier that is absolutely influential and supportive in helping soldiers move their career forward in the direction they most desire. SMDC's Command Career Counselor, Master Sergeant Jose Cruz. Oh, and this was such a fun interview. He is so talkative and fun, but also very genuine and professional. I wish we could play some of those clips that didn't make into the actual segment for perspective, but folks are just gonna have to meet him to find out what he's really like. Army career counselors, unlike the additional duty retention NCO in lower echelon organizations, serve full-time in their duties under the MOS, or Military Occupational Specialty, 79S, 79 Sierra. Their major duties are to assist commanders at all levels with sustaining the Army's readiness posture and achieving their retention mission, advise commanders on all matters relating to the Army retention program, ensure mission accomplishment and process reclassification actions, process bars of contained service, counsels, re-enlists, extends or transitions qualified soldiers, and many others. I gotta be honest, I didn't know career counselors were responsible for providing that many services. So before we dive into some of those, can we start off quickly with a little background on you and what your personal journey was like that led you to decide to become a career counselor? Since you're advising soldiers on their career decisions, I imagine you have to have a lot of experience yourself before you would be positioned for that responsibility. Well, that's it. You know, growing up as a young soldier, I knew the only way to influence positive change across the Army, it starts with me. It starts with the individual. Therefore, I felt by reclassing to a career counselor, primary MOS in Sierra, will allow me the greatest opportunity to impact soldiers at all levels. You know, especially being the eyes and ears of the battalion command team. And to caveat on that, um, not only the, the battalion command team, but as a career counselor, I also support the company command teams, uh, the brigade command teams, whichever command team uh, is out there. I support everyone in all types of formations. How specifically did you get selected to be a career counselor? They can't direct you into that type of job. So did you volunteer after being a recruiter? Did someone ask you if you would like to be considered? How did that process work for you? That is a really good question because, believe it or not, there are a lot of soldiers that don't realize that this is an application MOS. It's not an additional duty, and you do not have to be a prior recruiter to be a career counselor. So started off during OIF-1 when I was a 19-kilo tanker. Um, I was on a convoy pulling security. And it just so happened that the squadron career counselor was in my truck. And let me tell you, I had no idea what a career counselor was. So we were talking. I was pulling security for him. And at the end of the three-hour trip, we get off the truck. He looks at me, and he says to me, you need to be a career counselor. Ladies and gentlemen, the rest is history. You know, the career counselor, it's application MOS. Um, I was a full-time retention NCO upon returning back. Stateside for three months, and before you knew it, I was at the career counselor base, of course, at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, on my way to becoming a career counselor. When I talked to you earlier about coming on the podcast, one thing you mentioned during our conversation that stood out to me anyway 
was that there are many similarities between being a counselor for SMDC and other units you've worked at. But equally, there are some unique aspects when counseling SMDC soldiers. I'm sure you deal a lot with 25 series signal and 14 series air defense military occupational specialties, not to mention those with some particularly unique additional skill identifiers and other skill sets on top of that. Can you talk me through some of the more unique challenges, if that's the right word, about being the career counselor here at SMDC? Well, at the end of the day, soldiers will be soldiers. It doesn't matter the type of organization that I'm servicing. I truly believe I treat everyone the same. I imagine, what if that was my son or daughter? You, all soldiers have goals and dreams, desires, and it's my job to see how the Army can help them achieve their goals. A good portion of our soldiers in our formation have a unique skill set that is very remarkable on the civilian sector. Thus, asking for a commitment for continued service can be challenging. I really don't have to sell the Army. I just, have, I just have to help the soldier paint a picture and make sure the decision they make are in his or her best interest and their family. Um, I can tell you this, out of my 16 years of being a career counselor, I've really enjoyed this command. When it comes to retention, the support I get from all levels, all the way down to the MDBs, to the debt, to the companies, all the way up to HRC, to the 25 Sierra branch manager, the 14th Sierra branch manager, as well as um, the 31 Bravo branch manager. They are very helpful and allowing me to take care of the soldiers as far as giving them their options or achieving what the soldier wants. So without them, I couldn't, I couldn't do my job. So I would like to say thank you to all the leaders and soldiers in this command because all I do is write contracts. All I do is talk to the soldiers. But where the rubber meets the road for retention, it starts at the unit level. So let's keep it up and let's continue to move forward and do great things. So what are some of the common misconceptions about what career counselors like yourself do? Can you dispel some of the myths about the job? Like career counselors don't have to take part in formations or do PT. A follow-up question would also be, what type of incentives can and can't you include in re-enlistment contracts? That is a really good question. One of the first common misconceptions is that I sell cars. Sometimes I've been as a car salesman, oh, he, this is a guy trying to get me. Yes, every unit has a, a quota that is issued by the Department of the Army. My role is to ensure I make 100% contact with the soldiers in, within SMDC that are in their prescribed reenlistment window, which is 15 months from their ETS date. At the end of the day, the rest will take care of itself. We're counselors of soldiers as well. In my opinion, being relevant in your formation is 100% fact. That includes PT formations, NCOPDs, et cetera. It's all about establishing street cred. How can you ask a soldier to re-enlist if you're not out there with them? It's all about making yourself relevant. Bottom line up front, ladies and gentlemen. Um, there are a few, there are incentives for re-enlisting. Not every soldier gets the same one. So right now there are five options. You've got option Echo 1, which is regular Army. You've got option Echo 2, which is current stabilization, which is real popular within this, within this organization. You have option three, which consists of Army training, which incorporates MOS reclassification as well as ASIs or SQIs, such as airborne training, such as JTAGs, and so forth. Uh, you got option Echo 4, which is overseas assignment, as well as you got option five, CONIC, re-enlistment option. At the end of the day, you could only re-enlist for one option. 
And so when you re-enlist for choice of duty location, ladies and gentlemen, all we guarantee is location. The Army does not guarantee a specific unit within that area. In addition, when you reclass Army training, whether it's switching to a new MOS or going to a ASI or SQI producing school, you will normally, 99% of the time, PCS uh, upon graduation. So 90 days prior to going to school, you will have a follow-on assignment, which in this command, there's been a few instances where soldiers approach their 90-day window and they're not uh, going to school and they're not on orders. That's okay. What you do is you give me a call, you let me know, and I will take care of the rest. When it comes to incentives, like Huntsinger mentioned, when you get a cash bonus, which is a selective reenlistment bonus from the Army, 99% of the time it's going to be lump sum. The MOS bonus are based off a of soldier's skill level and what the Army needs. So not every soldier will get a bonus. We don't have a crystal ball to tell us when the bonus message is going to change. So I'll give you an example. I reenlisted a soldier today. Tomorrow the new bonus message changed. It could be an increase or it could be a decrease. I've seen it go both left and right. So the bonuses are driven by HUDA, and normally you see about maybe two to three different bonus message changes per year. So you might have received a bonus three years ago, but it doesn't mean when you're back in your window that you're going to be entitled to another, another bonus. So if a young NCO is listening to this thinking they would like to be a career counselor someday, it's something they, they think they have a passion for or are just, you know, really are interested in that. What advice would you give to them? How can they best position themselves? Again, no guarantees, but how can they best position themselves for at least a good chance of being selected as one? In order to become a career counselor, you normally have to be the company retention NCO. You have an established a working relationship with you and a career counselor. That is a must. Be able to function independently as well as be proactive. Furthermore, you have to have good communication skills as well as be an effective listener and communicator. This MOS means that you are part of special staff. So once you become a career counselor, you're always working for the battalion command team. So, for example, in this command, my raider and senior raider is the command sergeant major and the CG. When I was at battalion, it's the battalion commander and the battalion Sergeant Major. In order to become a career counselor, one of the key aspects of the packet uh, is a recommendation from the servicing career counselor. So, yes, I understand that, you know, as a retention NCO, you're on your way to becoming a career counselor. But what a lot of soldiers don't realize is once they become a career counselor, you're no longer a retention NCO. Therefore, you're held accountable. And a lot of times, soldiers don't realize what they're getting themselves into when they cross over to a career counselor, because all they see is what a career counselor does. We're talking, we're joking, we're communicating with them. They don't see what we do behind closed doors. They don't see the processing actions, the 4187s, the PowerPoint slides we gotta do, the communication we have to have with all the command teams, with the with uh, HRC, with the retention management branch up there. There's a lot of moving, moving parts, and so a lot of soldiers become overwhelmed because they get backblasted. So if they want to be a career counselor, they have to understand the entire concept. We just don't write reenlistments or do contract uh, extension contracts. There's a lot more in our tool back that we have to do that when it comes to light, soldiers are like, you either excel 
or you decide this is not for me. To be a career counselor, you have to be passionate about taking care of soldiers, bottom line up front. And if you're not passionate, you may want to consider staying at your current MOS. All right, I got to ask it. It is the title segment, in fact. What's cool about your job? And what motivates you, even if your motivators aren't necessarily the cool part of your job? The best part of my job, 100% keeping it honest, is when a soldier says thank you. To me, a thank you goes a long way. That's what motivates me to take care of these soldiers. Because at the end of the day, these soldiers that we impact now are our future leaders. When soldiers are raised by right leaders, they grow into phenomenal soldiers at the highest ranks. At the end of the day, the Army, us, we only want the best. The way we treat our soldiers now will impact them in the future. So let's do it right the first time. The caveat I said earlier, the word thank you fuels me. Whether it's coming down from a skill level one, two, three, or four, that right there shows me, tells me that I'm doing my job. Well, Beetle, our time's coming to an end. That just about does it for episode 10. So what do we have coming up for our listeners between now and the next monthly episode? I think the big one here, in Huntsville anyway, is the annual Space and Missile Defense Symposium, August 10th through the 12th. Get registered, it's no cost to DOD civilians and military, and get down there to see the exhibits and listen to the featured speakers. Our own Lieutenant General Karbler, Mr. Defada from the Space and Missile Defense Center of Excellence, and Dr. Zamuda from the SMDC Technical Center will be featured for various speaking engagements and panel discussions. And also during the SMD Symposium, SMDC's Command Chief Warrant Officer and Command Sergeant Major, Wesley Cleese and Finnis Dodson will be speaking live August 11th with retired Sergeant Major of the Army, Jack Tilly, on his podcast, Your Next Mission. And finally, SMDC's Command Sergeant Major Dotson is scheduled to speak at the ROTC commissioning ceremony at the University of Memphis, August 30th. We're done. Sergeant Hunsinger, thanks for joining me. Good to see you doing some actual work for a change. I don't know about you, but I had a, a good time putting all this together with you. I know it's almost like I do such little work that I work in PAO as well. And thanks for all our listeners out there. To find out the latest on SMDC's soldiers and units around the globe, which now includes 22 locations from across 10 time zones, check out our webpage at www.smdc.army.mil. From the High Ground Studio at Redstone Arsenal, Alabama, I'm Ronald Bailey. And I'm Sergeant First Class Trenton Hunsinger. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening. This is SMDC.